Welcome to Seize Your Midlife, the podcast exclusively for midlife women. I'm your host, Bree Schumacher. We are going to dive into all the things from health and hormones to beauty and wellness. We'll be asking the question, what's my midlife purpose? And what am I going to do with the rest of my life? We'll also be interviewing women who've taken leaps or made U-turns in midlife. This conversation is going to be engaging, sometimes educational, a little bit funny, and always real. It is my sincere hope that you find your midlife purpose and lead your most fulfilling life. So join us on this journey to seize your midlife. Let's go. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Seize Your Midlife. I am so excited that you are here today, and I'm especially excited because I have a guest today. Nancy Alvarado is a mom to two wonderful kids, her daughter who is actually pursuing her PhD right now, and a son who is living his best undergrad life at college. Nancy is an entrepreneur. She is the CEO and founder of Bricks to Bread. She loves traveling with her husband, Chato, and being outdoors. There is so much to Nancy's story and to her bio, but I'm going to leave it there because I want the story to come from her. So welcome to Caesar Midlife, Nancy. Good morning. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. This is great. I'm excited to talk with you. Yay. Okay. Well, as you know, my first question to everyone is, how old are you? All right. So that's where I pause and remind (laughs) myself that I am 55. 55. Okay. Awesome. And where are you right now? I am at our family home in St. Louis Park, which is a suburb of Minneapolis. And you're from Minnesota, right? I am born and raised. Um, I lived the majority of my youth life in Excelsior. Awesome. And one of the things that we share in common is a deep love of the Spanish language and the cultures that it represents. So will you just tell everyone, did you find Spanish or did Spanish find you? (laughs) Definitely Spanish found me. I actually was not a language person. Um, I was in high school, took a half a semester of German, but decided I wanted to study abroad and thought I was going to go to some wonderful English-speaking country. Um, and instead, they sent me to Colombia, South America, um, where I learned that they spoke Spanish and I didn't know a word of Spanish other than what I had learned on Sesame Street. So it was definitely baptism by fire um, and learning the language, um, not so much because I wanted to learn languages, but really because I became a member of a family that didn't speak English. My friends were all Spanish speakers and learning the language was a result of these lifelong relationships that I had um, and formed with the people while I was a student for a year in Colombia. 
I love that. And it will be the first of many times in your story that baptism by fire becomes a theme. And I I love that. And Colombia is such a warm and welcoming country. And so I can see why it inspired a love of Spanish and those warm Latin American countries in yes. you. Yes. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful country. So true. I I tell as many people as I can, like, go to Colombia. Don't believe narcos. Like, go, go. <laughs> okay, so you study in Colombia in high school. And then in college, you go on to get your BA in Spanish. You study in Spain. And then you eventually end up joining the Peace Corps. Is that right? That's right. I was actually um, a double major um, in my undergrad work in international business in Spanish. And after my three and a half years um, in my BA program, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. If I wanted to go into the workforce, go to grad school or do something really off the beaten track and join the Peace Corps. And really, truly, um, I believe it was, you know, um, the direction I was supposed to take. Um, I was accepted into the program and just went from there. It was, um, was one of my three options and man, am I glad that, that it, that it was the top. I love that. And I feel like there's so many people that are in midlife now wishing they could go back to their twenties and do something big and bold like that, because, you know, we don't realize when we're at that age, like how few opportunities we have to just like you know, go to another country and be free of responsibilities and all the things. So what a gift that you chose that path. Isn't that the truth? And really kind of guiding our children to to take those opportunities as well. It was a life-changing experience. Yeah. You never regret those kind of leaps. And I think that's just amazing. And it really does end up shaping your whole life because you end up in Costa Rica and Costa Rica becomes like a lifelong, you know, connection for you. And it sounded to me like when we talked that you, because of your business background, they had kind of assigned you to working, you know, in administration with a lot of the farmers and really it was a lot of men, but that your work on the side, working with the women in the community is what really ends up filling your cup. Did I get that right? That's true. That's true. In fact, I the program that I originally signed up for was called Women in Development. And upon arriving into Costa Rica, I learned that they changed that program to Rural Economic Development. So the focus wasn't on women. Um, and I was assigned to work with the community council in business administration and the farmers but, you know, I needed some sanity in my life <laughs> and found myself around the kitchen table with women most afternoons, drinking coffee and having wonderful pastries and really learning more about um, what their desires and their hopes and their dreams were and how I could support them um, during my two plus years in their community. And that really that really became one of the um, I would say definitely life changing as well but also where I built a lot of those beautiful relationships, where I learned the culture, I was able to play with their kids, and ultimately started a kindergarten class for their children, because that was really what they dreamt of wanting, was a place where their young children could go 
and prepare themselves for elementary school. I love that. And that that was something that you were doing in addition to your job. Amazing. And you told me a really cute story about rollerblades. Can you just share that? Because I just think it's it's so endearing. Yeah, yeah. So the other fun little project I did on the side was I started um, working with the youth in the community and we formed like a youth group. So it was a bunch of the young adults. Um, you know, most of those kids didn't go on to high school. There was no high school in the area. So they ended up working on their farms or in the kitchens with their mother. And we were really looking for something for um, the young adults to do um, as a pastime which continues to be a challenge in rural areas in Costa Rica or Latin America in general. I happen to have a connection with Rollerblade, which, you know, originated here in Minnesota. And it was back when Rollerblade was just starting. So even in the States, people thought it was really bizarre when somebody would skate by in these funny looking things that was a straight line of wheels versus the four wheels that we're so used to with roller skates. And they committed to sending us boxes and boxes of rollerblades, a ton of socks, and just some spare parts. And I can't even remember how we got them, but if you could imagine, that was a load, a load of a lot of rollerblades and spare parts that came into this country. And then they go into the most rural of rural communities. You know, we didn't even have running water. So this was a community that had a community center that was just one big, huge paved slab. And the youth decided that they were going to start creating these weekly opportunities for the community to come together and skate. And it was of all ages. It didn't matter if the skates didn't fit. They would put them on and they would skate around in this circle. And I mean, I have some of the best memories watching either these little tiny, tiny little kids trying to maneuver around these skates that looked about as big as themselves, um, or even these older adults putting on skates and, and trying it out for the first time. It was a great, it was a great experience. They actually even, we got to the point where this group would actually take the skates on tours and take them to other communities and do the same. So it really was, it was a lot of fun. Those rollerblades lasted a lot longer than we would allow our rollerblades to last here in this country. But I think those youth ran that program until those rollerblades no longer functioned. I want to say at least four or five years after I left. So it was a great opportunity for these young adults to get engaged, to do something and give back to their community as well. It was a fun experience. I love that. And I have a big smile on my face because I can just imagine these kids. And, you know, if you've traveled in a third rural country, I'm sure you have a great visual as well. But one of the things you and I talked about was that neither one of us are linguists. Our love is not truly in like the, you know, nitty gritty of a Spanish language. It is really in the beautiful cultures that it allows us to get to know. And you had said that you know, the relationships and the people are just what really made you fall in love with Costa Rica. And you actually fell in love with one man in particular <laughs> while you were in Costa Rica. Yes. <laughs> you end up meeting your husband, Chato, there. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And man, that's a story to tell. And, you know, I don't think we have enough time on this podcast to to start there to tell you the whole long story. But yes, 
we did meet in Costa Rica. I was robbed. Um, he worked for their federal police as an investigator who was assigned to my case. And even though I had told my mother I would never be so stupid as to fall in love with some Latino guy, the rest really is history. Honestly, um, he became my best friend. He loved sharing his culture and his country with me. And he loved learning about mine too. So we do definitely have that deep, devout interest in cultures and travel and um, exploring. And I think that really was a reason why we became such good friends. I love that. And it's funny that you said the thing about your family being like, don't, you know, bring somebody home, like don't fall in love. (laughs) And it's, I think I told you that my family was more surprised that I didn't bring somebody home (laughs) because I'm married to a total gringo. So, um, (laughs) you know, kind of funny, but I love the story of him coming to Minnesota in like the dead of winter and it was not baptism by fire. It was baptism by ice. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, for sure. I mean, this this was one of those really important parts of our relationship was that both of our families loved and adored um, our partner. And, you know, I won his family over um, and it was his time to come here to Minnesota and do his magic. And let's just say my dad never liked any of my boyfriends. It was always a struggle. And he did come in the heat of winter. It was January in Minnesota. My parents at the time were living up in northern Minnesota. So add 20 more degrees less than normal. Um, And my dad invited him on a fishing contest, an ice fishing contest. So, you know, his experience, he had dabbled in it maybe a few days beforehand with a neighbor buddy who had a house, you know, a little fishing house on the lake with a little fire inside and he'd bring his cooler with some beer. And so my husband is thinking, sweet, this is a great way for me to connect with my my future father-in-law. And so he takes on this challenge of going ice fishing with my dad and a couple of his buddies. Well, it was a contest. It wasn't sitting in a little house with a cooler filled with beer and a nice warm fire. It was a contest. <laughs> on a big open lake in northern Minnesota. And seriously, it was one of the coldest um, days for sure that he's probably ever been here. They um, are ready to head out. And he's like got on this simple warm jacket, you know, and my dad's like, okay, let's go. I'm sure my dad was thinking, all right, this is going to do him in. And then he's going to go back to his country. Instead, my mom stops him and she's like, okay, sweetie, you need to bundle up. And she brings him down into our basement where we have this collection of snowmobile suits and big, huge winter boots and, you know, um, raccoon hats, you know, you name it, all this stuff that's supposed to keep you super warm in the wintertime in Minnesota. And she bundles him up and he looks like the Michelin man, you know, the big, huge, um, he, just, he can't even walk, right? And oh so they gosh. go out on this adventure to find that this fishing contest is on open ice. There are no houses. You, It's all manual. You have to drill your own hole. They walk out. It's windy. They walk out. They drill their holes. And my husband still tells the story about, you know, within five minutes, he looks over at one of my dad's buddies 
who had a mustache at the time, and his mustache had icicles on it from him breathing and it forming into icicles on his mustache. And my husband, again, talks about the fact that he lasted maybe five minutes out there. And he's looking around wondering, how in the world am I going to get out of this? But it's a big, huge lake, right? And there's no place to go. And then he finds and he sees a couple of those outhouses, you know, those little Johnny outhouses or Biffy outhouses. He looks at my dad um, and he says, hey, I'm going over there. So when you're ready to leave, just knock on the door and I'll be sitting in one of those outhouses waiting to leave. He just wanted to protect himself from the wind. So yeah, he's his experience was um, quite enlightening and he spent a lot more time than most of us would ever spend in one of those outhouses. Oh my gosh, I love that. And it's clearly a testament to how much he loved you. And for those of you listening that are not from somewhere cold, this is the kind of cold that it hurts to breathe, that your face hurts, that the the water in your eyes starts to freeze, like icicles form on your eyelashes. Like it's, I mean, it must have been probably more than 20 below zero, right? Well, with the wind chill, it definitely was. Nowadays, they would have canceled that tournament. But, you know, that was years ago. Um, Nowadays, they would have canceled that tournament. It was so cold. Wow. And just imagine someone from Costa Rica that's like probably never even felt 40 degrees, right? (laughs) Let let alone the concept of drilling a hole in the ice and why doesn't the ice then, you know, fall? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love that story. Thank you for sharing it. And from that time, a lot happens in your life. You and Chato end up getting married. He comes back to the U.S. You get your MBA. You work in corporate America. Even at some point, you work as a part-time professor. So many things. And you end up at some point moving to the nonprofit sector. And fast forward, because there's a lot to your story, but 2012, you have this just incredible full circle moment. You had gone back to Costa Rica and you're visiting with um, one of your dear friends that you had met back in the Peace Corps. And meanwhile, one of your Minnesotan friends is taking a class on building brick ovens. So will you just tell everybody how this story ends up being like pure serendipity? Yes, for sure. Okay, so imagine 2012, that is, you know, 10 years ago. Um, So I was definitely um, beginning my midlife journey and so much had happened in my life, you know, the 30 years prior and really formed who I was and the experiences that I had. And here I was back in Costa Rica. We frequently traveled to Costa Rica because of our children and wanting to ensure that they were able to embrace their two cultures. And the place that I always considered my happy place was back in the village where I served And I was visiting with a family that um, was so, so dear to my heart and um, sitting around the table with the mother and the daughter. um, There was a Peace Corps volunteer in the community at that time as well and myself. And this family had just lost their two sources of income. And imagine these people are already living in extreme poverty. You know, they're annual income or their monthly income is maybe $150 to $170 um, a month. 
and they lose everything. The dad was a park ranger working um, and watching over a private um, um, large farm, and it was taken over by the bank, so they immediately fired him. And the mother and the daughter had a small business, micro-enterprise, let's say it, selling eggs in their community. And so between the, the, the two sources of incomes, they were able to survive, but instantly they lost both of them. He lost his job. And there was a large corporation that infiltrated rural Costa Rica selling eggs um, and really outpriced them. And they could no longer sell eggs and make a profit. They quit, you know, really producing those eggs. They got rid of all their chickens um, and were stuck. They were truly stuck. So the the four of us were sitting around the table and the Peace Corps was trying to help. The Peace Corps volunteer was trying to help us think about, you know, what are some other alternatives? Because these two women are amazing. They're incredible entrepreneurs, a beautiful duo. One, the younger daughter is super smart and super organized. And the mother is just this beautiful bundle of joy that could sell you a rock if she knocked on your door. You would buy it because she's just such an amazing salesperson. So as we're sitting around this, we're knowing that they're incredible cooks. Like, what about like a what about a bakery? What about if we they they start selling some types of breads or something? Well, the only thing they had was a a wood burning stove in their kitchen, and this Peace Corps volunteer had you know built this crazy little mud oven in behind his little shack, and he was making pizzas in it at the time. And so we came up with this crazy idea that this is like a food desert area. There's no such thing as fresh breads. What if we, what if we built them like an oven where they could actually bake bread? And ironically, my very best friend back at home um, was taking a course on building brick bread ovens in northern Minnesota. And so, you know, this was in the back of my head, I think, when we were talking about it. And I, it didn't really connect until I came home. And um, my very best friend and I kind of got together. And let's just say this was serendipity. This was definitely the the point where all things came together. My life experiences my time in the nonprofit sector, my my love for Costa Rica and rural Costa Rica, the women in Costa Rica and empowering these women to do great things and be great leaders in their communities and, and show the younger generations. My husband, who is the most giving and opportunistic uh, partner that anyone can have, and it, my very best friend who's learning how to build a brick oven, they all come together and we come up with a crazy idea. Yeah, you said you were literally like having a beer at a bar in, in you know, the suburbs of the, the Twin Cities and you guys just start kind of talking about, well, what if, Right. Exactly. What if? What if we took these two crazy ideas together? How could we do it? You know, building a brick oven is not cheap, right? I mean, this requires specific um, high density heat material. And we had to figure out how, how we could help out this family. So we came up with this crazy idea. We had a bunch of um, family friends who had always talked about wanting to go to Costa Rica, specifically with Chato. I mean, imagine going to a country and you are on a tour with a native Costa Rican who happens to be a dear friend of yours. 
And so what if we, so we're thinking, okay, well, let's get a bunch of our friends together. Cause this is how we, he learned to build this oven was in a, um, in a course around a bunch of other people or as hands-on. So there were a dozen people learning how to build a brick oven on the spot. So we kind of came up with this crazy idea. Let's invite our friends to help us build an oven. And the reward is that they can, we'll take them on some additional little fun adventures with Chato in Costa Rica. So we had a little garden party, invited our friends over. They paid a small little fee. Um, We had a garage sale. We raised enough money to actually buy the supplies. And then we got our, you know, very dear friends. I think it was five families who rallied together and we planned this crazy trip a group of volunteers to go down to rural Costa Rica and build an oven uh, for this family. Yeah, that was, that was the beginning. I just love that. And I love, cause I think, you know, I often go to Guatemala and I see things and I'm like, oh, this could be like that, or maybe I'll do this. And I, I mean, I hate to say it. I don't, I don't do, when I get home, I don't do anything about it. So I love that you're like, okay, we're going to make this happen. And these families that end up helping you, weren't they like your son's soccer friends and their parents? Yeah. You know how we, we all have our kids and our best friends in our, become our children's parents, right? And so we had this great group of friends. We were, you know, we would get together frequently. We'd rotate who was having the party at their house and the boys would all get together. And so it was truly, um, it was a family trip for each one of these families where the kids had a great time participating in the build as, as, as young as they were but also just traveling with their friends. And again, we were traveling with our friends too. So imagine the best family trip you could have is when you're traveling with your adult friends and your kids are traveling with their friends. I have just a tiny glimpse of that because a few years ago, I organized for two of my best friends and our three boys went into a trip in Guatemala that was very similar. We went into a village, we played soccer, we you know brought shoes, we did yes, all these things. And yeah. so yes, it's so amazing, especially when you get to see the kids go into an experience like that because if, you know, you're listening and you've never had like an immersion experience in a third world country, it is it can change your I always say like you change your life in 7 days like your life literally changes whereas you could go on a vacation for 3 weeks and your life and who you are stays exactly the same so these are just such formative amazing things so there's there's so many layers to to you actually making this happen and bringing those families and bringing those children and you talked to me about how, so the family, first of all, will you just tell everyone what the education was of the, I think Perez, is that the family? The Perez family, yep. Yes. What their education levels were, because you told me, and it was kind of startling as an American. <laughs> okay. So the father actually was originally from Nicaragua, and I think uh, he might've had a third grade education. The mother actually did go on to sixth grade and- they have four children and all four of them also went on to sixth grade, but they never had the opportunity to go on to high school, especially in this small community of San Marcos. Um, They would have had to have traveled um, for hours and or lived with family. So none of them really had anything higher than a sixth grade education. But I will tell you, if I were to take an, if, if, if we could give 
for example, Laura, the daughter, an IQ test, she'd be off the charts. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Wow. And I think just also, you know, as, as Americans, U.S. Americans, I think it's really hard for us to wrap our heads around, you know, our kids stopping school in third grade or even that sixth grade would be an accomplishment. Yeah. That's really hard to wrap our heads around. So, you know, you are there, you guys build this oven and then you get the opportunity to kind of check in with them and see how it's going. And what does that look like? So, you know, I think those first four years, you know, from 2012 to 2016, communication with them was pretty limited. They didn't have internet. They didn't have data plans on cell phones. It was pretty limited to when we would go down there and actually visit. So it was sporadic, to say the least. But every time we went, we coordinated a way to kind of get together to learn more about what they were doing. And it grew every time we went as well. So they went from these two women who had never really baked anything before. And I remember one of our trips, we went down thinking, ooh, let's teach them how to bake some awesome American-made bread, right? (laughs) And uh, then I go back and they're not making any of the stuff we taught them to make. They had figured out and learned how to make um, very unique Costa Rican, authentic to the region, different types of breads and pastries that their own community enjoyed and was looking forward to purchasing. Um, So every visit that we had, we learned more about what they were doing. A, A lot of it, you know, really was their entrepreneurial leadership and just their, their own, drive to wanting to be able to support their families. And again, I would say the young woman, Lauda, her um, passion and her ability to just um, see opportunities and work really hard for it really became who they are even today. Um, And they really, oh my gosh, they're amazing. She's She's definitely the spokesperson for who we are today. And she is... Um, she's my idol. I want to be like her when I grow up, even though she's probably 20 years younger than me. (laughs) Oh, I love that. And I think it's safe to say that this brick oven changed this family's life. Oh, definitely. Everybody in their family, for sure. Wow. That's just beautiful. For sure. They are the family now. It's iconic. People will say, the house with the brick oven. You know, where are you going? Well, when you see the fire from the house and the brick oven, be sure to take a left. So they are um, a known commodity in their community. They are now a gathering place in their community. And they also support their community with multiple different community-driven events. So if they have fundraisers, they're always preparing whether they're um, pastries or donuts or breads. When there's funerals, they supply the breads. It's just a, it's a beautiful part of a whole community that this family really, really did on their own. It was, it's, it's just, it's awesome. I love that so much. And so you see this huge transformation and their family really becomes quote unquote, the pilot family for you saying, let's go and and copy this. Let's do this again, right? Yes, yes. I actually took my kids down to study abroad 
for a semester. And during that time, we had many of those same families that went with our trip the first time come down to visit us because remember, our boys were best friends. So we had four of the five families come visit us while we were there during those eight months. And each time they came, we went to go visit in San Marcos. And every single one of those girlfriends of mine, the moms, was amazed and um, heart-filled to see what they were a part of. And no, without an exception, every single one of them said, you know, why don't you do this again? So after though that study abroad experience with our kids, we came back to the States and every one of those women, again, we were probably sitting around drinking a bottle of wine or something. I don't, you know, I don't know, just sitting around or sitting around a soccer field talking about it. And all of us agreed, well, let's start a nonprofit. Um, I had the experience in the nonprofit sector and, a, you know, in a leadership administrative role. So I knew the ins and the outs of forming a nonprofit and what it really took. Um, and they had the passion because they had the experience of living through the process. So they became um, our first board members and we started an official nonprofit four years later. Um, in 2016, with that idea of, well, let's just try it one more time. We'll see what happens, but let's do it. Let's do it. This was great. Let's see if we can make the same impact with another family in another community. I love that. And so Bricks to Bread was officially formed. That's correct. I love that. Okay. And so you kind of go back to your roots and you reach out to the Peace Corps and they become you know, a real partner for you, kind of your sole partner, it sounds like at the beginning. And then COVID hits. So what ends up happening with that? You know, the connection with the Peace Corps was ideal and it was incredibly important because remember, we're not experts in rural economic development. If anything, we just have the gift of, of knowing how to build a brick oven, bringing people together um, and celebrating and, and doing something um, in service for others. But the Peace Corps really does have um, a wonderful program um, with in-depth knowledge and experience in rural economic development. They were really the highlights of our ability to begin because they um, send Peace Corps volunteers in the regions that most need them. And these Peace Corps volunteers were the ones that were able to identify and support these families who had an interest in starting their own uh, microenterprise. So that partnership, um, I believe, is 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 still critical to Bricks to Bread um, and our success because, like I said, they are the experts um, in their own country, and and I'm the last person to say that I that I I know what I'm doing in that area. So really relying on their expertise has been a huge part of our success. Uh, And they still help us today. Um, They're a wonderful partner, although, like you said, COVID hit and that changed everything. When COVID hit, um, all of the Peace Corps volunteers throughout the world were evacuated from their sites within 72 hours. Wow. Which is devastating for these volunteers. I couldn't have imagined if I would have been forced to leave my village with only 72 hours to get to the main capital. I mean, for me, it took a whole day to get to a cap- the capital city. 
So imagine having to say goodbye to your families, your friends in less than 48 hours. So as the Peace Corps volunteers left, we had three projects kind of in the pilot, in the, in the, not in the pilot, in the pipeline, um, kind of in that process of them being oven recipients um, and having worked with these Peace Corps volunteers. So all of a sudden the Peace Corps volunteers, they're gone. And we have to figure out how we can continue to support these women and their dreams. And, you know, we, we put our feet down and we're like, there's no, we're not giving up. We're going to figure this out. We're small. We're nimble. We can pivot. It's easy for us to pivot because we're so small. Um, So let's just figure it out. Um, And we, you know, thank goodness now in 2020, most of these people and women have um, cell phones. You know, they don't have landlines, but the the technology with cell phones really changed um, third world countries, giving them the ability to um, have better access to communications through through cell phone services. And most of these women had cell phones or had a family member who had cell phones. So we could, we could connect with them. We couldn't do it in person, but we definitely could connect. And if we were really lucky, they actually had a data plan and then we could um, communicate via WhatsApp, which is, you know, the world's um, way of communicating video, audio, you know, I think, Uh, That's what everybody else in the world uses to communicate. And most of the women, at least somebody in their community had access to that. And that really, as the Peace Corps left, forced us to start building these very more personal relationships with each one of the communities where previously it was more driven by the Peace Corps volunteer. So again, it was it was a pivotal moment, but it also changed um, how we do what we do as well, how Bricks to Bread as an organization supports these communities and these women. And then again, it's become a lot more personal. Um, and I think definitely has become more <clears throat> more fulfilling um, for for all parties, for the, for the women that we serve, for the families that we serve, um, and definitely now for um, the staff that we have in Costa Rica. And, you know, I think that's such an interesting thing because, you know, by all intents and purposes, the partnership with the Peace Corps was going great. You wouldn't have changed anything if it wasn't for COVID. But sometimes these changes that at first appear really hard end up being for the better. And it sounds like this really changed the way that you run Bricks to Bread in a way that meant more to everyone involved in the long run. So I think that happens a lot in life, right? You run into an obstacle and it seems really hard and really bad. And a lot of times that obstacle is just a really important learning curve that ends up shifting things in a way that they were meant to go. Would you say that's true for your organization? Definitely, definitely. And again, I think the other the other aspect to recognize is, you know, when you have an entrepreneurial spirit, you're a risk taker. And you're also constantly having to pivot because things never really go as planned, right? What goes as planned in life? And so the fact that we could, we were nimble enough that we could, we could change our direction. Um, And at the time I was not working full time, which, you know, the majority of our time with Bricks to Bread, I was working a full time job and this was kind of the side gig. 
at this particular time, um, I stepped away from my full-time job. And so I was really focused on Bricks to Bread. And that definitely gave us that opportunity to dive deep um, into serving these women in a different capacity. And then imagine to top it off with COVID, you know, how can we continue to build ovens for these women who are eager to start their businesses in a time of a world pandemic? Remember, we were building ovens or our model was around building a group of U.S. volunteers to go down to Costa Rica to build these ovens. COVID hits. There's three women in the pipeline. They still want, they still are dreaming of having an oven. And and so not only did the Peace Corps concept change a lot, but the other concept that really changed that I believe has been a beautiful result again of COVID is we were forced to find local volunteers where in Latin American countries, the idea of giving back comes naturally, but it's not talked about like it is here. You know, we talk about philanthropy, we talk about hours of service, but in these countries, they just give, they give back without knowing. But the idea that we could embrace this um, idea of, of people giving back to others that they don't even know was kind of new. And we had to start looking for local folks who would be willing to give up their time and help us build ovens. So we started building a volunteer base in Costa Rica, and most of them are youth, which is, again, it's a beautiful, beautiful opportunity and experience because not only are they going outside of their own communities, but they're working with bricks to bread, oftentimes, you know, other North American volunteers. So they're having their own cultural exchanges during these uh, brick oven experiences. So we pivoted almost in a couple ways, not just the loss of the Peace Corps, but also the loss of being able to bring large groups of North American volunteers to build these ovens. And we built something different and new in Costa Rica. We, we now have a volunteer base in Costa Rica and people who, who are like on the list, I want to go help. I want to go help. So it's a, it's a great, it's a cool thing. COVID was terrible, but it brought out many beautiful opportunities for us to think differently. Absolutely. That was probably the the best gift from COVID was, you know, kind of our time together and also that I think innovation and the way yes. that, you know, life kind of started playing out because of necessity. And it sounds like that was very much the case for Bricks to Bread. Yes. One thing I just wanted to circle back to because we didn't talk about it is not only are these ovens so beneficial for economics to the family and to the community, but also that there is really a safety issue that happens with people having wood burning ovens in their homes, which you see a lot in Central America. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the brick ovens that we build are are unique in the sense that we highlight the fact that they're efficient for these women. So economically, they make a lot of sense. And we, you talked a little bit about that. They're super low maintenance, which is another economic issue that we won't address right now. But the other important aspect to recognize in these particular ovens is, like you said, the, the health implications to the women in Costa Rica and Latin America in general do a lot of cooking over open fires. 
And so they're one of the highest health hazards are issues with lung diseases as a result of these women constantly breathing in this smoke. These brick ovens um, allow for that smoke to escape so the women are never breathing in the smoke. And again, it so either, even though it's economically a great opportunity for them to be successful, it's also a much healthier way for them to prepare meals, foods, um, and for them to, um, you know, mass produce something in order for them to start their own uh, businesses. So it is definitely has a health benefit to the women and the, their families, basically, because they too are no longer now breathing in all that smoke. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it's hard maybe for people here to imagine, but when I close my eyes and I think about walking down the street of a village in Guatemala, literally this, that smell is the memory that comes to me first. And it's yeah. that it's that yeah. wood burning smell because everyone is making their tortillas and their things like that yep. over open fire in their homes. And until you said that to me, it never dawned on me that that was a hazard to those families and to those women. So that's another really amazing benefit of these brick ovens. Okay. So these are not cheap. Whether you are sourcing them in the U.S. or sourcing them in Costa Rica, they are not cheap. Can you just give everyone an estimate of what it takes financially to build a brick oven for a community? Sure. Well, first I will say this is my least favorite question because so <laughs> many people think about the brick oven is the solution. you know, And yes, the brick oven is expensive. Um, in fact, the brick oven project is expensive because not only do we build them a brick oven, but they we also build them a kitchen and we provide seed money for their business. Um, I'll get into the, you know, the financial cost for that. But most importantly, our projects and our program isn't about building an oven. It's about supporting these women in their dreams. Mm. And we don't just go in and build an oven and leave we are on this journey with them. And that's, that's, you know, when we pivoted with COVID, we learned that the opportunity for us to have lifelong relationships with these communities, a minimum of three years is, is really what's going to um, help them be successful. So yeah, there's a cost to an oven. There's a cost to the kitchen. There's a cost mm -hmm. to this, you know, the seed funding, but there's also a more important aspect and that is supporting these women before their oven, ensuring that they're equipped to be successful, and then supporting them afterwards as they journey through that process of starting a new bakery business. So an oven does cost, um, the oven itself is about $3,400 to $3,500. The kitchen is the most expensive, as you can imagine, um, because we build them to um, meet code for their Department of Health, which allows them to get proper permits to sell their breads and goods um, on the local market that usually costs between four and $5,000. And we also um, provide them with seed money that allows them to go to trainings. It allows them to do everything they need to do to get all the proper permits and permissions. It allows them to buy the core equipment that they need in their kitchen, as well as what they need for baking. And it also gives them some startup money, some the opportunity for them to have um, some of the raw materials where they can practice and fail. If you can imagine, these, these women don't have much. And for them to invest $20 into raw materials and for it to burn, 
they're probably not going to want to do it again. So Mm -hmm. we provide them that opportunity to start and practice and fail. So when they are ready to go to market, they are successful and they can reap the benefits of, of their hard work and their investment into the oven project. So again, add that all up. It's about $11,000, $12,000 for that project. But imagine supporting these women for three to five years. And that support includes, you know, the one-on-one connections with our staff. They go to our annual conferences. Oftentimes they will go on field trips and visit different ovens. And we try to support them in doing all of these different things. And and that really becomes, um, you know, add that to it in a project that, you know, starts out at ten, twelve thousand dollars for raw materials, really results in supporting um, each of these women entrepreneurs as more closer to twenty five thousand dollars through their kind of lifespan of experience um, with our staff. And I say three to five years because, you know, we've been our second oven we built only four years ago. And to this day, nobody in our program has dropped out, nor have they wanted to drop out. So it's been a lifelong relationship with uh, each one of these communities. And that part is really important to us. So that's really where the investment comes into play. The, the raw materials, the bricks, that's, that's just the vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it sounds, it's layered. And it sounds like really transformative, which is amazing. Yes. Yeah. And one of the things that you told me as you're, you know, identifying the women that you were going to work with to provide a brick oven to is that they have to come up with 25%. And most of the time that they don't have the financial means to come up with 25% in cash. Um, so what does that 25% that they they give or that they're willing to contribute or that they have to contribute? What does that look like typically? Sure. So, you know, the, this is the idea of having skin in the game. And, and we all know that, you know, um, just giving somebody something to give them something doesn't have the same ma- value as um, having skin in the game. And so we felt strongly about our program, ensuring that these women had skin in the game. It also helped us ensure that as we're going through our selection process, that these women are really invested, that they're ready to do this, that they're ready to put their heels in the ground and go with it. Not yet to date have we had a program where they have had to financially invest in these programs. Their 25% contribution comes from things as simple as finding transportation for delivery of materials free. So for example, we had a woman who whose brother had a truck and so he would go pick up the supplies instead of us having to pay for delivery. That's her investment. She's going out knocking on doors and finding people to help her support her mission, support her drive, support her dream. We've had folks who have recruited their their family members or their neighbors to help build the kitchen aspect where instead of us having to hire a contractor, um, they are finding the resources locally to kind of decrease the overall cost for Bricks to Bread to implement these these programs. We've had people who go to the local hardware stores and they give them a significant discount or they provide free brick or free cement. They love 
the option of providing the meals for the volunteers. So when we form these groups, um, you know, we charge our volunteers to go on these trips. And one of those aspects is they obviously are paying for their meals. So if a woman commits to wanting to prepare the meals for the, the families, then we pay that woman, so to speak. And that results in their ability to contribute to their um, oven project as well. And, and that they know well and that they can do well. And they're so resourceful that the cost of the, the food that they would need to prepare for the meals is much less than what it would cost us to go to a restaurant and take our volunteers. And, and who wants to do that? I mean, the best food that we've ever had is by far the women cooking in their own kitchens and preparing meals for our volunteers. By far, you could ask any one of our volunteers, what was their favorite meal? They will say, sitting around the kitchen with so-and-so's homemade cooking, by far. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Well, it's making me hungry because I can yeah. only I can only imagine. Um, right. it, yes, I can Fresh only imagine. Tortillas, arroz con oh. pollo, yeah. Love, I love that, and I think um, really smart with that twenty five percent, and also an innovative way of looking at it. One thing that I loved hearing was that you and Chato actually have a brick oven in your backyard now. Yeah. Yeah. That is so cool. So what do you use that for? So that oven actually became, remember I told you that I was working a full-time job, not working a full-time job. That oven actually became the result of being forced back into the workforce uh, for a period of time. And I remember when we agreed that I had to go back into the workforce, I said to Chato, I was like, okay, but here's the deal. My first paycheck is going towards building an oven in our backyard. And I'm going to use that as the vehicle for teaching our own community what we're doing in Costa Rica. So we have an oven in our backyard, which is exactly like the ovens that we build in Costa Rica. And it has become the opportunity for us to share what we do in Costa Rica, but share it with our local community. This is where we have most of our events. We just had our October fiesta where we had over 150 people in our backyard. We had warm pretzels coming out of the oven, brats on a stick, you know, because we're from Minnesota, so it has to be on a stick. Um, we had uh, two or three of our local breweries um, provide the beer. We had a distillery here. We had some great teas and beverages. Um, and we brought our community together and shared with them the things that we've been doing in Costa Rica because of brick ovens. We also bake bread just like the women do in Costa Rica. The idea that we are baking bread for our own community and representing what they do there and showing our own community what it is that they do in the same real-time moments. And I can't tell you how many times I'm baking bread here with our volunteers I shoot out a photo to our group of women. And at the same time that we're baking bread here in Minnesota, somebody is always breaking bread someplace in Costa Rica. They shoot back a photo of them baking their own breads. And so it's it's the opportunity for us to show our community what is happening in Costa Rica. 
Wow, I love that. And I love the uh, versatility that you could just um, have a whole Oktoberfest right out of the brick oven. <laughs> yeah, right, right. It's amazing. I love that. That's so great. Okay, so one of the things that you said to me that stuck out the most when we um, chatted prior to this call is that when you first, you know, went back to Costa Rica, you know, it was about 10 years ago, you were kind of in a little bit of a midlife crisis. And you talk about how bricks to bread and where you are right now has has you in what you call a midlife love fest. <laughs> is that right? That's right. That's right. I, I suppose it could have easily gone the opposite direction. Um, but I was living in, it was another opportunity that we had to take our kids to study abroad. Our son was in high school. So I took a leave of absence from my full-time paying job, went down to Costa Rica for um, eight months with my son and fell in love with being a mother. I was always the working mom. um, And, you know, as much as I loved my work life, Um, The balance wasn't all that healthy, but I, for the first time in my life, had an opportunity to actually just be a mom. And um, I always wanted to be a mom, but I was forced into that workforce um, requirement and falling in love with just being a mom. And so when we came back, I would say that might have been my little midlife crisis where I came back and I said to my husband, I was like, you know, I kind of loved being a mom. I, I want to be a mom for a while. You know, I, I spent, you know, I'd been working since I was 14 and I just wanted to be a mom. So, you know, I think the idea of that was my crises. It was was like this big reality that I just spent the first half of my life working and working and working and trying to establish who we were as a family, as a couple, but all of a sudden, Not only did I walk away and could I be a mother, but that was when everything kind of came together. That was when my girlfriends came down to visit. They saw what we were doing. And instead of turning it into a midlife crisis, I had this crazy idea um, and it ended up being a midlife love fest. I stopped doing what I had to do and started doing what I love to do. And Imagine a family with two incomes and, you know, we live pretty simple means. We don't have big, huge, high corporate jobs and dropping down to one income was a significant challenge. We knew we had two kids at the time in a private school and we knew that our kids were going to be going on to college. And so it was going to be a challenge, but it was also a true leap of faith. Um, and I'm a, I'm a woman of faith. I feel that this was definitely, I think I was put in every one of my positions and experiences to come to this point, this full circle point of giving my life back um, in service to women. And I love it. I am more filled. My cup is flowing, overflowing um, <laughs> because of this love fest with what I'm doing. I don't I don't take an income, but the good Lord has been blessing us. I don't know how. <laughs> we, we still live in the same house. Our kids are on to college and a 
PhD program, and things are grand, and for some, God only knows how reason we're living off of a single, simple income, um, and I am living the dream of a mid-life woman who I've taken everything that I've learned, and I'm finally able to just do and love on what um, the, let's just say it, the good Lord has given me and graced me to do, so... Yeah, oh. midlife love fest. I love that so much. And, um, you know, you and I had kind of talked offline about how you're a little bit older than a lot of the other women I had interviewed until this point. And that I loved that because I think to see where you went from, you know, your mid 40s to now your mid 50s and the way that your life has changed, the way that you have stepped into your purpose so fully. I think is the most incredible inspiration and I love it so much. I think every woman listening is looking for her midlife love fest because that's awesome when you jump out of bed in the morning and you cannot wait to do the thing you were meant to do. That is beautiful. And it only it only gets better. I mean, I think <laughs> of all of the hard work that we've all put in becoming who we are as women in a culture, in a society, in a world that shaped us to who we are. And now we get to take all those tools that we have in our toolbox and do what drives our soul, our heart, uh, and just give give it and do it. And I mean, we've done it all. We've, we've spent the whole first half of our lives um, learning, experiencing, failing, succeeding. And now is the opportunity to just love on it. There's no reason to be in a crisis. Just just love on it. Yes, I love that. And I hope that everyone listening finds their midlife love fest because that is beautiful. And seize the moment, right? Yes, yes. Seize your midlife. Um, yes. Will you just tell everyone listening where they can find you so that if they want to get involved, if they want to donate, whatever it is, where is the best place for them to look for you? You know, there's a couple um, avenues and vehicles that you can start. The best place is probably our website, although given the fact that it was built by volunteers, it's not the best, but go there, Mm -hmm. learn a little bit more about who we are and what we do. And there's always that... opportunity to shoot me an email. The easiest way is at info at bricks2bread.org. Super simple. But we also are on Facebook. We try to do a little bit in Instagram. I'm not a great social media person, um, but we are out there. You know, the other place that is really fun to go to is our YouTube channel. Um, We have put out a couple great videos about what we do. We've had our summer interns that pull together their own experience. Um, So that's another great place to just kind of see it live in action is on our YouTube page, which is simply bricks to bread. Um, So any place on social media, I'm in St. Louis Park. If you see smoke coming out of a a chimney, uh, just chase it down and it might just be us building uh, or baking bread in our oven. Um, But I would probably say the website, social media is a great place to start. Fantastic. And I will absolutely put all of this in the show notes. But thank you so much for your time today and your story. It is truly an inspiration. And I'm so grateful to get the opportunity to get to know you better. 
And this has been great. I too, I look forward to more chatting opportunities, especially with the, we have so many similar passions um, and just this, the idea of bringing women together um, at a time in our lives where we definitely uh, have the opportunity to seize the moment. Absolutely. And thanks to all of you for listening. It goes without saying that I am humbled and grateful that you tune in. If you can so kindly subscribe to the podcast or tell a friend, I would appreciate it. The more women that find the podcast, the fuller this conversation will be. Thanks so much, friends. And I hope you find your midlife love fest. Bye.